Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Extinction. The 2018 Netflix original starring Michael Pena and Lizzie Kaplan, the dream team, as it were. Hello and welcome to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my friend and co-host Julio. Julio, weather's been off and on here in Austin. (laughs) Temperatures are rising, but nothing has been, you know, we've, we've had some pretty intense bounce of increment rain but um, nothing has been as unpredictable or wild as what we're fixing to cover here this evening <laughs> it's as unpredictable and wild as the the suggestions the demands of one patron one dan brannick yeah i was gonna say that uh it's good circumstances because we're here because one of our patrons picked this and that means we have patrons and so it's something to celebrate um (laughs) so looking at it this looking at the bright side for sure if nothing else about this movie is positive then at least there's that uh so yes we are here today to discuss extinction uh, demanded by our patron dan brennick thank you dan thank you you for being a patron not necessarily thank you for picking this movie (laughs) I was about to say, I'm kind of just at a loss for words as to where to start here. So we'll just start with the basics. Uh, If this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, thank you very much for tuning in. If you're a returning listener, thank you all the same. You know we love you. Give us a moment here while we explain what we do to our new listeners. Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, as we say. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as certified fresh. Usually shoot for about 85% and above. And what we will do then is find uh, some of maybe the negatives in the, the film that were overlooked or, you know, not exploited, things that the critics glossed over or just chose not to bring to light. And uh, on the opposite side of the coin, we will find a movie that is lowly rated on Rotten Tomatoes, usually about 30% and below uh, those nasty green splotches that everyone likes to call rotten. And we'll make a case for the positive merit in that film and some of the things that, be it themes, characters, things that people overlooked or just flat out got wrong. We're here to say that, you know, the Rotten Tomato system is flawed. That's what we're here to expose. Uh, now, these contrarian views and reviews of films take place in the first portion of our podcast, which we call Contrarian's Corner. Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about the subject we're discussing, they just have to hang around to the second half. That's correct. The second half of the show, aptly titled Real Talk, is when we get real, we expose our true feelings. We tell each other how we tell the audience how we feel about the movie that we were pretending to like or pretending to hate uh, in the first half. And uh, in cases like this one, this 
Netflix original that neither of us had heard of before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is just who knows. Well, okay, no, I'll level with you, listeners. I know a little bit because Alex couldn't contain himself while he was watching this movie. And <laughs> he texted me a couple times in all caps. I'm not gonna say <laughs> what he texted. I'll save that for real talk. But uh, I-, I have an inkling <laughs> how Alex feels. <laughs> so um, uh, stick around for the second half of the show if if you want to find out about all that and also. Uh, to find out how Dan feels, because I, I have a pretty sizable uh, amount of text to read <laughs> from him on Real Talk. Outstanding. Returning to the Netflix original well, uh, when's the last time we were there? Was it Mute, the last time we visited uh, Netflix? Does Marriage Story qualify as a Netflix original? I know it had a theatrical run, but it was it it's mostly like a Netflix production of sorts. Uh, I guess, yeah, because that's where it dropped. I keep forgetting about that. Yeah. Similar emotions were conjured up here with the, the viewing of Extinction. <laughs> but it, it preceded uh, Marriage Story. So in the Netflix universe, this comes first. This is before Adam Driver punched a hole in the wall. Uh, looks like it originally been scheduled for a theatrical release in January of 2018. So there is like right away a red flag if universal (laughs) pictures said yeah let's just throw it in the january pile uh that's usually cause for concern or Uh, or they were trying to make january happen oh they were trying to turn january into like the new february uh, june yeah (laughs) (laughs) the new uh, memorial day weekend yeah but it was pulled and it was reported the next month that netflix had acquired the film from universal uh, due to its negative reviews with criticism towards its Confused and weak storyline, character development, and pacing. Well, we'll just see about that. I don't know what you're talking about, Alex. Directed by Ben Young. Let's see if this gentleman has any other credits to his name. Looks like he directed something called Hounds of Love in 2016. Something Fishy in 2010, which was a short film. And directed several episodes of the television shows Trapped, Castaway, and Prank Patrol. Looks like this was um, his first big boy movie, though. He was all leading up to this. It was. Yeah, this was the culmination of his career. Uh, Screenplay by Spencer Cohen and Brad Kane. Brad Kane did some work on the screenplay for Starship Troopers. So we cannot escape Starship Troopers. Not escape Starship Troopers. And looks like Mr. Cohen... Just had a few writing credits to his name up until this point. Looks like he worked on um, some television specials for different musicians. So a mix, a bag of mixed nuts coming into this production here. Uh, but I mean, you have Michael Pena at the helm with Lizzie Kaplan right behind him. Uh, what appears to be Anne Hathaway's brother also plays a large part in this movie. <laughs> but all those parts come together to comprise a film that has a 32% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. That is what... Uh us in the industry call a rotten movie but is it really a rotten movie are you ready for some rotten quotes alex i was about to say julio with a rating that lowly it means some people were saying some nasty stuff so what were they saying i don't think this is going to surprise you alex but uh i was able to actually count them count the reviews for this movie on the run tomatoes website 20 so 32% 32% of 20, that's how many fresh reviews are, and the rest are rotten. So I picked three from the rotten pile, starting with Luke Buckmaster from flicks.com.au. 
who says, the kind of sludgy genre pick that used to be derided for having a made-for-TV quality, back when that label was still an insult. I mean, made-for-TV movies. I agree with him one thing, that I don't think that you can throw that as an insult today. But I think that back when it was an insult, I wouldn't... Would you call this an old-time made-for-TV movie? Definitely not old-time, because especially, like, the first 20 minutes of this movie look like a modern car commercial, like the way it's <laughs> shot and just the the colors and the, you know, the HDR behind it. It, it was definitely a high-res movie. That's something right off the back that I can give it credit for. Uh, no, I don't think this looks like an old made-for-TV movie. Maybe the further we get into it, you could see some homages to that. But Intentional. No, it, it <laughs> Yeah, it establishes itself as its as a modern piece of filmmaking right away. Yeah. Um, next, Brian Orndorff. I feel like we've been calling on Brian Orndorff numerous times this year. From Blu-ray.com says, Extinction begins lethargically and remains there for 90 minutes. Look, we have a saying here in The Contrarians. It's, 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 it's Alex's saying, which is like, <laughs> you can watch anything for 90 minutes. Do you <laughs> yep. still stand by that, Alex? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's that's the right amount of time to where it doesn't feel like you wasted your time doing something. You could dislike something, but it's not a Judd Apatow piece of four hour acted literature that makes you just question your being and what you're doing with your life. <laughs> uh, if Extinction had been just like an ecstatic shot of uh, Michael Pena and Lizzie Kaplan watching the movie Extinction, I would have been happy for 90 minutes. <laughs> I don't need anything else. Um, finally, and very appropriately, German Lucier from io9.com says, unfortunately, almost every element other than the twist is bad. I'm like, that's very appropriate on the heels of two episodes about M. Night Shyamalan, where, mm-hmm. um, you know, we were talking about it. We haven't gotten to the sixth sense of the Shyamalanthology yet, but that was kind of like my thing. You take away the the twist at the end of the sixth sense, and it's like, eh, you know. So why are you giving Shyamalan a pass, and uh, Mister Young here gets gets a rotten uh, review? It, it, and I'll argue there's more there's more to this movie than the twist. Oh, absolutely. I would argue that Shyamalan in none of his movies has made uh, has had as comprehensive of a social statement or like a social commentary that is portrayed in this movie. I agree. Oh, oh, I was wrong, Alex. There's one more quote, of course, from Uh-oh. Dan Brannick himself, <laughs> who wrote a review for his Netflix and Sewell website. I'm only going to read the the tagline of his review, and then we'll get into the actual review of Real Talk. But uh, okay. Dan's tagline says, Netflix's latest sci-fi effort winds up in the sci-y pile. Zing! <laughs> this is why Dan makes the big bucks over at Netflix and Swill, and and we just we just pick up the pieces afterwards. <laughs> Peter, an engineer, has reoccurring nightmares in which everyone he knows suffers through violent alien invasion-like confrontations with an unknown enemy. This causes him to have a strained relationship with his wife Alice and his daughters Hannah and Lucy. He reluctantly visits a clinic to receive psychiatric help, only to find a patient there who reveals that he is having the same visions and that the psych would only suppress these visions. This prompts Peter to believe his visions are of an upcoming invasion. Peter, played by Michael Pena. Alice, 
played by Lizzie Kaplan. The movie begins with, yeah, these visions, these nightmares, these almost like PTSD type war flashbacks that uh, Michael Payne is having, but he believes it's uh, foreboding something or, you know, something that he could be having a premonition. Uh, not unlike Professor X at the beginning of the Phoenix saga where he saw intergalactic war was on the horizon and needed to do something to stop it. But You know what the main difference is? What's the main difference? <laughs> Professor X is a boring white dude. And <laughs> Peter here is played by Michael Pena, Hispanic icon Michael Pena, who played Cesar Chavez in the movie Cesar Chavez. The only other, you know, I would call it Michael Pena vehicle that I'm aware of. I know he's in that movie with... Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal too. I think it's like end of watch, but mm-hmm. that to me, just from the poster, because I haven't watched it, that seems like Michael Pena is second build and Gyllenhaal is is the main guy there. Here, I would argue Pena is the lead, a hundred percent the lead. Oh, absolutely, right? Not even uh, Lizzie Kaplan. You know, she. I think she gets second billing because she's she's out of the movie for a good chunk. She is, uh, but she establishes early that her husband Peter's got issues and needs to get help. Because he's having these nightmares and it's uh, causing him to get distracted, fall asleep at work, all this crazy shit. He's She's not the only one, though. His boss is like, hey, you need to get some help with that, too. And it starts like I was getting kind of um, total recall. Well, I was going to say the, the the beginning of this movie is like in Brothers when Tobey Maguire comes back from war uh-huh. and he he's trying to like act normal around his kids, but something's clearly wrong. So it like right away, I was like, man, what's going on here? I couldn't tell. It still was fairly vague as to whether or not this was something, you know, ominous or something that had happened in the past type thing. But, you know, right away, he's trying to make good. He's like, I know I haven't been, you know, myself lately, so let's have a family night. And then he, of course, passes out at work and sleeps until he pulls a Randy the Ram and sleeps right through it. Oh, my God. We're in sync because I wrote that note. You know what's funny? (laughs) I wrote that note uh, a week ago, the first time I watched this movie. Because, you know, listeners, we had to reschedule. So it's been a week since I watched the movie. And I was looking over my notes earlier today. And I'm like, what the fuck does this mean? <laughs> Pena pulls a Randy the Ram? What is that? <laughs> and well, then, so I, yeah, I had the movie playing in the background while I was like pulling up quotes earlier today. And it, then I remembered, oh, yeah, because he makes this date with his family and then he completely. He sleeps through it, right? That's what happens. He like passes yeah. out at work when he wakes up. Yeah, like, oh shit! He it wasn't even after like a coke binge and banging a blonde all night long. He just falls asleep at his desk at work. I mean, I've been there. Those long nights at the projection booth. At yeah, the but up table. Alex, yeah. did you have Lizzie Kaplan waiting for you at home? This is a very good point. No, I did not. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's how you know he has issues. I have in caps, idiot. For him missing out on that. Yeah, they think he's a crazy person. And so he has to go to the, as I mentioned, they want him to go see like a a psychiatrist. And there appears to be another guy there that's having the same dreams he is, which a good little moment of introspection here. And, you know, um, interesting internal dialogue that you would you don't actually hear, but you see all these thoughts going through Michael Pena's head about, well, Am I crazy or is this guy right? Are we right and everyone else is wrong? It's mm-hmm. a it's a very short but very good moment of acting from Michael Pena uh, in the sense of, obviously, you know, I've struggled with things like OCD in the past and, you know, issues with attention and stuff. Uh, I'm blessed to say I've never had 
issues similar to what Michael Pena is going through here. So I can't say that I sympathize or really can relate to it. I could definitely empathize with what his character is going through because he truly he is seeing these things. And so it's just hard for him to explain anybody. And then everyone thinks he's crazy. But then he meets this one other guy and it's got to make you question its own sanity. It's a vicious cycle. And like I said, this is a very, very brief moment of acting here from Michael Pena. But there's so much packed into it. That's all he needs. He needs like five seconds where like somebody like Hugh Jackman would need a whole scene to really get into it. Pena gives it to you like that because I, I, in a way, I think that he's been waiting for years to, to get a chance to, to shine in a leading role like this. On the set of Observe and Report, he, he was just holding back on us. He's like, well, one yeah. day I will be given the opportunity. That's, that's being a generous actor, right? Like here you get to see what Michael Pena can do when you let him. And then you realize that he's been holding back so he wouldn't steal the thunder from his co-stars in other movies where he's just, you know, where he's not the protagonist. I mean, fuck, I was watching this movie and I was like, because he gets into some pretty serious scuffles uh, later on. This is, you know, it's a drama, it's a family drama, it's an action movie, it's, you know, all sorts of things. And and Michael Pena excels at them. And I'm like, why is he? He's been in two MCU movies so far and he's just comic relief. He didn't need to be Ant-Man's buddy. He could have been Ant-Man. It's, it's just, it's crazy. But now, speaking of the MCU, you oh, know, and, and no, 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 <laughs> just in the sense that I was pretty captivated by the fact that I was getting, at least for the first half of this movie, or the first act of this movie, I was getting two movies in one. Because you have the the family drama of Lizzie Kaplan and Michael Pena, their marriage is strained because he's just absent-minded and having these nightmares. She's trying to be patient, but obviously they're not. They're going through rough times, and uh, their kids are acting up and all that stuff. But then, parallel to that, because we keep cutting to Michael Pena's dreams, hallucinations, whatever they are, and uh, they're telling a story. I mean, they're, they're telling it out of order, but you can tell that there's there's something going on, and whatever this thing is, if it's a fabrication of his mind or an alternate reality uh, or precognition, whatever it is, uh, it, there seems to be some sort of invasion happening, and there's like a lot of action sequences, and you see at some point you see his boss carrying a gun. <laughs> it's like, I <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, and it's not really explained where he works. Like if the first shot of his job, it looks like he's working inside the fucking Challenger, like he's building a spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> it's true <laughs> did you recognize his boss from anything i mean i know i got the, the upper hand on you there because i've i watched luke cage and this guy was luke cage but <laughs> ah, mike coulter no i was not familiar with him yeah i was like hey it's luke cage that's really all i know him from <laughs> Okay, I thought you were going to like start listing off this filmography for me. And, no, you know. but I, I was hoping that maybe I was being limited in my perception of Mike Coulter. Ah. It was like, I thought that he was Luke Cage, and you were like, oh yeah, that's the guy from, I don't know, some wrestling movie I'm not familiar with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. So he's having these premonitions, goes to the, the psychiatrist. He bails, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he, yeah. he looks at this really weird sort of pulsating image you know it looks like one of those 3d posters that you have to kind of like get cross-eyed so you can see the 3d and then uh, mm-hmm. and then he's like nope fuck this i'm walking away and and that's i mentioned total recall like a minute ago because i i was getting total recall vibes and i'm like are we gonna get into a thing where uh 
like like it happens to Arnold in Total Recall, right? He goes through the process, and the process instead of curing him unlocks his entire, you know, memories or whatever. But uh, yeah. it looks like Michael Pena had seen that movie because he decided to just walk away. So yeah, he bails, and then they end up having like a cocktail hour at his apartment with uh, some of the people from their uh, complex. He obviously has a good job because, damn, dude, they got a high-rise apartment that's super fucking swank. Hell of a view of downtown, wherever the hell they are. And then they have, like, the token white friends that uh, <laughs> come over, like I said, for cocktail hour. And the man, the buddy, you know, the other dad, meets Michael Pena out on the deck. who's uh, all of a sudden got a telescope that he's just, like, looking into the stratosphere with, the outer space. Every time I see a telescope, I always think of the Simpsons where Bart gets one and it shows him like looking into outer space and seeing like, you know, shooting stars, Saturn, all these things. And he just goes, wow. And then it cuts back to his room and he goes, the universe is so boring. And that's (laughs) something that immediately comes to mind whenever I see a telescope. But he's looking out into space. He's trying to, you know. What what really what line of dialogue I really could have used here is the the man friend comes out he should have hit him with the No Country for Old Men Tommy Lee Jones's brother that tells him can't stop what's coming that's just like that's a line this movie could have used at any point in time what was actually spoken a better line put to film than what the Coens turned out back in two thousand seven was the man friend tells him he's like you gotta quit looking for what's out there and you gotta start looking at what's in there and he points to the living room and at his family and. I, I guess up until this point, Michael Pena might have forgotten that he has a family. But again, <laughs> and then in like this moment of this movie's brilliant by design in the sense that it only gives Michael Pena these secondary moments of acting, like literal seconds, because he starts to reflect on that. And then this like lightning storm and spotlight <laughs> festival starts happening. And then he immediately is like, can you see that? And the guy's like, of course I can. And then he immediately gets this look on his face like, I was right. I was right. <laughs> But he can't well, let me tell my face. wife. <laughs> yeah. Hey, see this? What's <laughs> over? Say, guess what? Miss who doesn't find me sexually attractive anymore. I was right. <laughs> well, speaking of, before we move into the the meat of this story, <laughs> speaking of the the stereotypical white neighbors and uh, it just their awesome lines, the one that got me riled up in this this scene is when because uh, I think that the little happy hour they're having is to celebrate uh lizzie kaplan getting a promotion or something and uh oh yeah she's like an architect or something right yeah 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 and so she's they're celebrating something and uh the wife of that dude you know, uh, she michael pena is like sulking in the background because <laughs> he's you know he's he keeps f- having fights with uh, lizzie kaplan and you know he didn't go to the doctor and whatever and then the neighbor the female neighbor notices and she looks at Lizzie Kaplan and she's like, this is your night. Don't let him ruin it or something like that. And I was like, you stay out of their marriage. <laughs> that's, out of, <laughs> that's out of line. You know, if you want to cheer her up, like get her a drink, change the subject. But don't go up to her and go like, hey, your husband sucks. You're right. <laughs> you don't know the context. So needless to say, I was happy when that lady died later. <laughs> So, yeah, something's happening. There's a bunch of lights, and then there's a big, like, explosion that knocks out all the glass in the city. It's like a big cascade-type affair, and um, something has arrived. We are not alone. There are no clean getaways. (laughs) 
in not Los Angeles, no one can hear you scream. They, it just is immediate, absolute chaos. Like there's no time to collect your breath or figure out what's going on. And these beings start invading the building, like the high rise complex there. And we just start hearing gunfire and Pena and his family take off. They get separated from their friends. They eventually reconvene, but there's no time to really accept or process what's going on, Julio. It just is immediate chaos and death. But I like it. This is one of my favorite things in the movie is that I like that Lizzie Kaplan just, you know, no ego here whatsoever. She doesn't even try to kind of save face with the fact that she's been making fun of Michael Pena's nightmares all this time. She goes up to him and she's like, is this what was happening in your nightmares? And he's like, yes. And she's like, all right, what do we do next? <laughs> that's because honestly, when faced in a situation like that, you know, that's what you would do. It's a, the, the problem with movies, and that's why they go over 90 minutes so often, is that they will milk that tension, right? And they would spend mm-hmm. another 20 minutes with Lizzie Kaplan trying to like rationalize what's happening and be like, no, there's no way. There has to be a, an explanation other than we're being invaded by otherworldly beings. Uh, but here, no, she just, just readily accepts that. Michael Pena is probably the best chance they have at making it out alive because he's been having these premonitions. He's seen this happen before. Yeah, and then when they get to their first like bit of safe haven, I just love like the kids sit down. And he's like, can I talk to you for a minute? It's just like a classic <laughs> married couple squabble. But yeah, she asks him what's happening. He says, well, this is all out of order. I don't know. The One of the little girls, the youngest girl, uh, wants to go back to her, her room because... Um, Is it Marvin? She has her little stuffed animal that's a monkey that she keeps throughout the whole film. I can't remember what its name is. But when you you squeeze its belly, it says monkey see, monkey do. And my sister watches with me. And every time it said that, we quoted The Office where Jim says monkey see, monkey do. And Michael says monkey pee all over you. That's (laughs) I can't hear that expression now without thinking about that. Just an anecdote from my end but anyway so she wanders away from where the safety is and gets her monkey and then one of these alien beings uh these extraterrestrial vessels confronts her and then michael pena gets in a fight with it and then lizzie kaplan comes in to save the day well she comes in with like a ball bat or something and just starts beating the shit out of it and like caves its little helmet skull in it's uh it's intense but again, it seems like a lot of this movie, especially in the first half of it, served to emasculate Michael Pena. And this was like <laughs> the coupe de grasse, as Dusty Rhodes would say, where she just comes in and beats the shit out of this alien. And they start to wander away. And this is where they I think they go up to the roof or something and they meet up with the the token white friends. And this is where they realize the scope of what's going on because we get these shots of like buildings being blown up and just groups of people being mowed down. Yeah, there's the the big reveal. Yeah. And, well, they take the weaponry from the the guy that they beat down, or the alien, the whatever that they beat down, and Michael Pena has a line of dialogue. is something like, their weaponry is not much different from ours. This is a, you know, a bio-grade. He has, like, he breaks it down immediately. It's like, what do you do for a living, man? <laughs> it's like in, uh... That building, it was it's multi-purpose as far as the plot goes. That's the beauty of it. You just project whatever you want on it. <laughs> it's like when he in uh, the Dark Knight when fucking Christian Bale comes around the corner, takes that guy's shotgun, just dip, disassembles the weapon and drops it on the ground. Could have used a shot of Michael Pena doing that. 
Um, did you, uh, I mean, you have to have felt this sort of, uh, I don't even know, that I would call it the vindication, but more of a, I don't know. I, I don't know how to define it, but just the fact that this is the next movie we're doing on the podcast right after Signs, which was the most lackluster, unimpressive, underwhelming alien invasion uh, that we've seen in a while. And now suddenly we get an invasion that is finally, you know, loud and destructive. And now these these beings, whoever they are, whatever they are, they're not going door to door knocking just asking for permission to take over. No, they're just destroying shit. They don't care. They have cool suits and uh, they're literally not taking prisoners. It, it, it's To me, that was refreshing. That's the word. It was like, yes, you can, you know, even if it's not Independence Day, at least it's not science. And that is a huge step forward. Well, it's interesting because it was, that's kind of what I was segueing into next. Is this movie, you know, love it or hate it? It's green screen mania. It's uh, there is heavy reliance on the green and blue screens in this film. Uh, I'm almost sure, almost positive, all of the shots outside are in some capacity in front of a green screen. But so that like the ships and all the shit you see is all computer generated. However, and as a practical uh, effects fan, I loved that this wasn't your typical you know, CG aliens or anything. The aliens look really weird. You're not quite sure what to make of them and see what, you know, most movies in this situation would have skimped on the, the CG budget and put it all towards creating the aliens and then just had really shitty, you know, practical sets. Whereas this movie kind of flipped that on its ear. And clearly, you know, some people would think the look of the alien is a bit lazy, but clearly they went meticulous effort into it. Just the way they look could not have been an accident, had to be by design. And because of all that, I appreciate that they went the extra mile and made those all physical outfits. You can clearly see it's a guy in there, a la, you know, the original Godzilla just operating the big rubber suit that he's put into. <laughs> now, when you, when you finally, when you got a good look at what these invaders looked like, did you think, I'm going to guess that you thought, fuck, What's his name? The main character in uh, Halo? Master... Master Chief? Yeah. Did you think Master Chief? Because I... I was going to say like Mass Effect 3 or something like that. But okay. Yeah, yeah I, I went further back. I thought uh, Sabus from Metroid. Because, you know, that's just oh, ingrained in my mind. But I'm like... So when the one took its helmet off later in the movie, you were expecting it to be like a smoking hot redhead? Well, it's crossing my fingers. But <laughs> then again, I mean, we already had Lizzie Kaplan. You can only afford so much hotness on screen, but yeah, I I liked it. You know, it's like they they took a a, a classic design and they elevated it. We we're still waiting for a Metroid movie. We're still waiting for a Halo movie, but we got Extinction. Yeah, we did. <laughs> so the plan at this point is for them to maneuver their way down uh, underground if necessary, but to get to the factory that Michael Pena works at. He said there's, uh, it goes underground, so they, he feels they would be safest there. So that's where the journey goes. People, you know, there's like a local militia gunning down these fuckers <laughs> as they come in, but they get mowed down by one of the ships. Uh, there's death everywhere. The We find out around this point in time that we thought the one that Lizzie Kaplan wore out with a baseball bat died, but it wakes back up, and now it was on the hunt for that family, for Peter and the gang. Um Meanwhile, the family ducks into like a sewer uh, because of all the chaos that's going on. And this is where we find out that Lizzie Kaplan's been shot kind of in the, the side. Oh, we lose the neighbors. The 
<laughs> at some point before she gets shot, we lose the neighbors. Do they die on screen? Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. I missed well, that. I think the dad, like, there's an explosion and the dad's gone. And then what I remember is that the one of the girls, the neighbor's kids, she's falling and the mom's holding her, like, over the ledge. And then they both fall. Like, there's another thing that explodes. I, I mean, it, it, the, the point is that the standard white neighbors got killed, like, maybe a third of the way into the movie. But inter, the interracial couple made it. Because Michael Pena and Lizzie Kaplan prevail, uh, even though at times their kids seem to be working against them when it comes to surviving uh, this attack. There's this uh, awesome shot where the the youngest of their daughters is just in awe. She, she's like us, like the audience watching the movie. She's just in awe of this ship that's approaching, <laughs> about to shoot them. It's like she forgot that they're in danger. And uh, I was like, yeah, I can relate in the sense not of... Uh, that I would do the same thing, but in the sense that I totally expect a little kid to just be that dumb. And, you know, Lizzie Kaplan in saving her is when she gets shot. Lizzie Kaplan's hurting. She's bad. She's down. So the alien that lived confronts them in the sewer and starts fighting uh, both hand-to-hand and firefighting with Michael Pena. One of the girls shouts, leave my daddy alone. And that's going to work in an alien invasion. <laughs> So Michael Pena gets the better of him, takes him down. There's a big hole in his helmet or, you know, the exoskeleton that he has, whatever it may be. Uh, We're starting to be able to see into it a little bit. We're hearing some grunting coming and it takes off his helmet and it's a person. It's a dude that looks like Anne Hathaway's brother. And (laughs) it's it's the first big twist in the movie. Yes. And so it's people or so we think. Is it like bizarro people? Is it Soylent Green? (laughs) But he's got a gun and he points at the guy. And he's like, pick her up. He just trusts her to carry his wife, who's presumably dying, uh, <laughs> as they make their way to this factory. And once they get there, they're greeted by his boss, Luke Cage. Yeah, <laughs> Luke Cage. Mike Coulter slash Luke Cage. Who's clearly prepared for this. He He's acting like a man that knew this was coming. Uh, I think even because they start like tending to Lizzie Kaplan and. I, I literally think Michael Payne even seen, says, like, you seem awfully prepared for this. Mm-hmm. He does. And, <laughs> he okay. does say that. <laughs> he's like, we knew this was coming, son. And we're very close to, like, saying, you know, you're going to have to help us defend him. And Michael Payne is like, I'm not a trained soldier. And I was really hoping we were going to get a uh, recycling of the Josh Dumal line from the first Transformers. Where he grabs Shia by the collar and says, damn it, son, you're a soldier now. But Luke Cage just tells Michael Pena, you'd be surprised what you can do in, you know, moments of distress. So much happens in this, like, fucking five-minute sequence because then the alien starts talking and saying, I can help his wife. Oh, yeah, because they they write her off. They're like, Lizzie Kaplan's not going to make it. Um, Yeah, she gets Cloverfielded here. Remember in Cloverfield how she just, this exact same thing happens to her? Yep. Except in in Cloverfield, her body blows up in this. She stays all right. But it seems very similar. Like, they get there, and she just gets on a gurney and gets rushed away. And uh, who's the doofus that's the cameraman, quote-unquote, in Cloverfield? Is it Um, T.J. Miller? Yep. Uh, T.J. Redacted Miller. We don't have T.J. Miller, like, screaming, like, oh, where are you taking her? I can't remember what her name is in Cloverfield, but it's something saucy. It's like Martha or Marcy (laughs) or something like that. But... He's like, where are you taking her? And then you just see her blow up in this. Like, they're like fucking, they've got ghetto defibrillators that they're hitting her with. And Michael Pena is like 
trying he's like trying to address his wife but then they're also just like she's gone son it's time to move on and they're trying to push her away and then he's, the alien uh, is, he's met like, damon. I can fix her. he's met damon in contagion <laughs> yes okay great can i see her <laughs> what are you talking about what happened to her what happened to her god i love that movie contagion not extinction uh, but so the alien starts talking. He starts doing fucking the. Uh, I can't remember what nationality the dude is in the terminal who's like medicine for goat, medicine for goat. <laughs> this guy is like, I can help her. I can help her after not saying a goddamn word for the past ten minutes that he's been like dehelmeted, and so at this point I thought that he was like Antonio Banderas in the the Thirteenth Warrior. I think it is where. <laughs> He just listens to everybody talk for like during a five minute, ten minute sequence, and that's how he learns to speak English. And so he'd been watching and listening to uh, Michael Pena and Lizzie Kaplan bickering back and forth <laughs> while they were taking him to the the underground base. And now he he knows how to talk in English. So he says, "I can fix her. I can help her. There's more I can do." And Michael Pena points the gun at him, and he's all, "Well, why would you help us now?" Or what? Why do you know this? And I have the line written down. Anne Hathaway's brother says, "I had to learn everything about you people." Sadly, Michael Pena does not say, "What do you mean, you people?" <laughs> that would pay off later. So anyway, he's like, "Okay," and Luke Cage just lets him do it. Like they just, he just lets him take this alien to like, you know, the side office that they have there for certain conference <laughs> meetings. Well. He gives his kids to the resistance that's leaving. They're like heading towards an escape vessel. So he tells his kids, we're going to go get mommy better. We'll meet you and then we'll all leave the island together, whatever. It's slowly teetering into 2012 territory with John Cusack. And <laughs> who plays his wife in that movie? Uh, I was about to say before you even finish the question, I'm going to be like Woody Harrelson. But no, I guess that's not correct amanda pete ah the whole yeah. nine yards amanda pete uh saving silverman's pete, uh, amanda pete thank you very much identity thief amanda pete <laughs> <laughs> anyway so julio break it down here the the alien takes them to the side room to fix lizzie kaplan and then this is where like you know turn two of 30 in this movie happens <laughs> Out Shyamalanin Shyamalan, one more than one twist, and it works. Shyamalaning, Shyamalaning, yeah, it's uh, well level with me, Alex. Did you see this coming? No. Okay, me neither. I was under the spell. I it took me by surprise the way it was assigned to to do, because it turns out that uh, so he starts digging. <laughs> on in, inside uh, uh, Lizzie Kaplan's side to to fix her, and then she starts from inside. We see that she's she's glowing blue, and there's like some mechanisms. It looks she looks like a she doesn't look like us. <laughs> she looks like a, a by a different construct, and uh, so it turns out that Michael Pena and Lizzie Kaplan and the Resistance, like they're not human. They are the the others. And uh, the, these people that are attacking them, they are humans. Like, they're the people that are like you and me that are actually coming back to... They're attacking to take back the planet that was once taken away from them by these creatures that are like uh, Lizzie Kaplan and Michael Pena. And then, mm. thank God, because I don't know if I would be able to process it, but thank God that the director 
decided to actually now explain everything. We because in order to save Lisa Kaplan, this guy and Hathaway's brother has to hook up Michael Pena to Lizzie Kaplan to provide her with energy. It's kind of like a, it's not a blood transfusion, but like an energy transfusion, I guess that's happening. And uh, so Michael Pena kind of like doses into a very helpful flashback that actually shows us what happened in this planet, which is great. And what happened is that humans were humans and they were, they created artificial intelligence and then artificial intelligence became intelligent enough to where it was starting to develop feelings and it's Skynet, man. But I guess the humans decided to destroy uh, or, or fight against the artificial intelligence before it became evil, before it started demanding its own rights. And uh, it all ended up in this sort of civil war between humans and artificial intelligence. And uh, kind of surprisingly, artificial intelligence won. <laughs> and the humans were forced to leave the planet and then artificial intelligence, I guess, in order to be able to live, move on past this big tragedy, this betrayal and all this trauma, I would say, I don't know, maybe 90% of them uh, voluntarily wipe their memories out and reprogram themselves to believe that they were human and they that they had always been there. And then there was a 10% that included Luke Cage that remained aware of what had happened, of their secret history, so that they could prepare for the day when uh, humans would inevitably come back to try to take Earth from them again. Um, this is massive. This is like a story of its own, like a movie of its own. Like you could have done like a whole extension prequel just telling this story. And yet uh, the director, he he manages to just hit all the big beats and get all the emotional stuff. Like it turns out that Michael Peña and Lizzie Kaplan's daughters are not even their daughters. They're just like children AI that were lost in the middle of the attack. And then Michael Pena and Lizzie Kaplan found them and adopted them. Um, Whose parents were killed because they were humans, which begs the question, how did two humans have two AI children? Well, I imagine, and this is awesome because the movie just kind of like leaves that out there, right? I would imagine that AI children is what you do when you can't have kids of your own and you just, it's a lot easier to, you know, adopt ah. I guess, AI children. There's a lot of like, future loose ends that you could tie up in a sequel or explore in a sequel or a prequel or whatever. It's 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 fascinating. Uh, all this happens, and I know this is just me, maybe you too, Alex. We keep getting cuts back to Michael Pena, you know, in the in present day, having an orgasm. <laughs> That's what it looks like. He has his, his eyes are closed, his head is tilted back, and he's kind of like shaking a little bit, and he is connected to Lizzie Kaplan. <laughs> so, it was yeah because he they have to like exchange power sources to yeah that's that's what they that's call what it the now. fucking alien says he's like she needs an alternate power source to be alive but yeah they both come back to and it's through this like you said we find that these dreams and premonitions and shit that he was having were not that they were just flashbacks you know suppressed memories type thing right. and that like the majority of people after the war and the takeover had their minds wiped you know, and then they kind of replanted memories in their head. That's how they thought they were a family their whole lives. Is yeah, just... it's a it's pretty crazy. It's it's a pretty subtle and yet brutal commentary on, I guess, the cyclical nature of uh, humans and humanity, because the fact that you could see his memories and they would work pretty much like premonitions, right? He's remembering how the humans attacked him. 
And that ends up being pretty much the same way that the humans attack them again <laughs> years later. It's just like, that's humanity. You just keep making the same mistakes over and over. That, I thought that that was crazy. Like, it, it never feels... Like, I didn't feel cheated. You know, sometimes when movies go for this, like, twist after twist after twist thing, at some point you just give up. And you're like, okay, well, this doesn't make any sense. You're just trying to... You're trying to... Uh, fool me and you haven't earned it but in this case i felt that the movie had placed enough building blocks to to get to this reveal and i'm like it makes sense it everything made sense so julio after the chart they've been plugged in the charging station and we get the huge exposition dump and we're up to speed on everything this is where we get the who are the real monsters mm-hmm. scene where does the dude the human guy have a name. Miles. This. Miles. It's Miles. He, you know, Peter asks him, why are you helping us? We're the enemy. And he's just like, well, I've learned that we're not so different. And, you know, they didn't tell me I was going to be sent down here to be killing children. And the question that's existed of war since the dawn of man, who's the enemy and who's the real bad guy in these situations. So it's a question that we have to ask ourselves. And this movie definitely makes us take a long look in the mirror. Um, he tells them, you know, you guys can hide and I'll tell them there's no one here. And they say, no, we got to go to our girls. So they take off and go down this long red lit hallway that looks straight out of only God forgives. And (laughs) they're like running away from this horde of military and they're not running particularly fast. I think it just shows how inept the, whatever earth two's military is. (laughs) They at no point explain where humans move to, did they? I, I don't think so, no. No, but, I mean, it's been a while. I just realized that as I was remembering what happens because Miles says that he had never been on Earth. They say that his grandfather left Earth. So that means that there are at least two generations ago mm. that this whole thing happened. Mm-hmm. It's just that in my mind, when I'm thinking of the flashbacks, I'm thinking, oh, well, Michael Pena and Lizzie Kaplan look the same, but that's because they don't age. They're artificial. Yeah, the flashbacks, like the the clothing is definitely meant to establish it was like late 60s, early 70s. And like, you know, this movement that was happening of Sims or whatever that uh, is that what they were calling them? Sims, I, selves, Sims, AIs. I don't know. They, they had some like, no, they had some derogatory term for them because like one of them like runs into Lizzie Kaplan and is like, look out, you dumb Sim or something yeah. like that. I can't remember what they say, but. <laughs> But yeah, their wardrobe's hilarious, and it shows like this white guy with a mustache who's clearly racist, just like looking on with just uttered contempt for their kind. It's it's absurd. I felt that the the afro they put on Michael Pena was a little too much, but thankfully that's only for yeah. the flashbacks. <laughs> He's got like the Danny Trejo handlebar mustache. Just, <laughs> um, but you know what's cool about those flashbacks? Well, I mean, everything, but specifically that you do see the beginning of this sort of connection that Lizzie Kaplan and Michael Pena have before they are brainwashed, mind-wiped into being a family. I mean, you can tell that they they had a connection. This It's not that, oh, these artificial intelligence constructs were mindless machines or whatever, because actually right after that happens, that lady bumps into Lizzie Kaplan and bitches her out. Michael Pena comes up to her and is kind to her, and that's, you know, when you see, like, they exchange a look and whatever. And then from then on, you see them kind of growing closer through the rest of the of that flashback. So it, it really establishes the point that these these were living creatures, right? And there was mm-hmm. just no... Uh, the fact that humanity just decided to kind of like 
cover their ears and close their eyes and go like, nah, 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 let's get rid of them right now. <laughs> it's just, it, it's just appalling. I mean, there's no, at least to me, there's no doubt about who's in the wrong here. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. But I mean, and to prove your point, Lizzie Kaplan shows up with uh, her daughter's stuffed animal because she knew how much she needed it. I mean, they don't forget shit like humans do. <laughs> it's a classic action movie, too, because it's the last train out of town, you know, for to save the AI civilization. And they get there just at the last second as they're still being shot at as the, the train like kind of stops and they take time to have like an embrace outside of the train where Luke Cage has to remind them, hey, <laughs> impending doom. Did you think Luke Cage was going to eat it in this final scene? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I thought he was going to die the hero for the AI and he would be like, you know, a martyr for them. But he, he's he got his bulletproof vest on. He's opening fire. And then they have like this massive turret on the back of their train that just mows down the whole military force that comes in. And so they get in the train. They're safe. They're making their escape. And Michael Pena goes to talk to Luke Cage, who explains, you know, uh, I was one of the few that didn't have my mind wiped when this all happened. We needed to make sure there were people like myself that could help prepare for when they, they potentially would come back. And, you know, everyone else here now is starting to remember it's just kind of the, the way the system works. And so we're going to have to rebuild. And I guess it's insinuated that everyone's going to have to have their memory banks wiped again. And Oh, see, I didn't think so. It's a restarting. I, oh, really? No, I thought that they were... Uh, because, see, I thought that they were setting us up for just that the sequel was not, oh, we're back to where we started. You know, To me, the sequel was just, okay, now we all have our memories, and now the battle continues. Because as far as I could tell, they didn't send the invaders, the, the original humans, they were not sent back to wherever they came from. Instead, they, you know, the AIs, the Sims, whatever you want to call them, like, they escaped. So the humans are still a threat, you know, wherever that the, this train is taking them to, uh, they're not really in the clear. They're temporarily away from them. But I imagine if if Extinction 2 were to happen, it would just be all-out war for 90 minutes. It'd be really dumb if they wiped everybody's memories again. <laughs> That's true. As they're going, like, the track is falling behind them, and then they go into this massive mountain where they have a trail built, and we get this monologue, uh, you know, a voiceover of Michael Pena saying, you know, I've learned about other life and I've learned about the enemy and we're not so different. And I think if everyone just realized that we would get along a lot better, it's very heavy handed shit. I do love though, that it, it, the ending, like the last 30 seconds in the movie, it's a lesson to women everywhere because when Michael Pena sits down, Lizzie Kaplan's like, I'm sorry, I didn't believe you. And that's what you get for emasculating him in the first half hour of the movie. You apologize. You, you kiss the ring in the end. Well, I mean, I think that it's just you take turns, right? It's the least that she could do after he <laughs> he saved her life with the little like energy transfer. And and Lizzie Kaplan has been awesome. 90% of the movie. The least she can do is apologize for that 10% where she kind of sucked. And I'm sure that after the credits rolled, Michael Pena apologized for everything he did wrong, too. And then they get away and into hiding they go for the foreseeable future as they regroup and learn and wait for the next alien invasion. Wait for the next extinction. Uh, what would you call it? Extinction 2? Or would you call it rebirth? Extunct. <laughs> Extunct. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> See, that's a problem. Extinction would be like the sequel's title. This this should have been called like Invasion or something. Well, you know, there's a lot of things that should have happened in this movie and didn't. <laughs> it not being released is a big one. <laughs> All right. Well, well, we did it. We made it to the end. We got on the train, and uh, now Michael Pena and Lizzie Kaplan are just talking to Chris Evans and Octavia Spencer, and uh, we're ready for real talk. This has been a perfect uh, amalgamation episode of everything that's been going on. You got the train, you got aliens, you got twists and turns, you got Michael Pena that's never out of style. It's uh, It all came together to blend uh, one very interesting jambalaya, and Julio, I'm way ahead of you. Let's move this train into real talk. The tunnel system is so old, no one else would take it on, that's all. This promotion is a big deal, Al. You should be happy. I am. Good. Hey, hey, don't you worry about him, it's your night, okay? I know. Last few guests are taking off, in case you wanted to say goodbye. Or hello. Did my wife send you over? Worse, my wife. No, I like to look up sometimes. That puts everything in perspective, don't you think? What do you, what do you really want to ask? I know it's none of my business. I think you're looking in the wrong direction. I mean, you're out here focused on whatever's up there when you should be looking at what's in there. I mean, I'm... What the hell is that? And we are back. But before we go into real talk, it's time for PP, our patron pitch. This is where we let our patrons know what's waiting for them on the patron feed. And this is where we let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. Well, by the time that this episode drops, we should already have that Ad Astra uh, bonus exclusive episode uh, on the patron feed. uh, Very excited about watching that movie. Me too. Me too. Uh, Of course, we haven't recorded it yet. So, so we're talking to you from the future and from the past at the same time. Uh, but that is also courtesy of, of uh, Dan Brennick, another uh, patron demand. I mean, Ad Astra, you haven't seen it yet, Alex, so I don't want to spoil it. But, you know, not quite extinction levels of awesomeness. I'll, <laughs> I'll just say that. Well, also, if you're a patron, you also have access to all the deleted stuff that uh, doesn't make it into the actual episodes. And, of course, you also have access to Contrarians After Hours. The segment, the, the spin-off show, the patron exclusive, where we talk to you about uh, other things that we've watched, that we've read, that we've played. Sometimes they have to do with the main topic of the episode, sometimes they don't. What are you bringing to Contrarians After Hours this time, Alex? Well, Julio, have you heard of, uh, of Three from Hell, the Rob Zombie movie? <laughs> yes. That, you know, I can't remember if it actually played at our theater or not. If it did, it was very limited, like one of those Fathom events that played one night. My understanding was that it was set for a theatrical release, but then people saw it and they're like nope just give it to shutter because it was a shutter original oh um, yeah that's not what we're gonna be talking about <laughs> damn it <laughs> i well you had me you have me all, all excited <laughs> it's gonna come up it'll probably be on our next patreon exclusive our next plug section after you rewatch it no here's the problem it's two hours long and i started it 
and I could have sworn I was at least an hour and a half into it. And when I pulled up the little bloop bloop at the bottom, I'd only watched 50 minutes of the movie. So I'm like, <laughs> I have to finish it because even in the first 50 minutes of it, I have many thoughts that I want to talk about with you and also for potential listener feedback. As people know that know me and are listening to these podcasts, we have thoughts on Rob Zombie as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to put that out there. And also, you know, he's going to make the Munsters. He got the... the- <laughs> Yes. The rights to that. I can't wait to be extremely conflicted about whether I'm going to watch it or not. Herman rapes the neighbor and then oh kills her. <laughs> Sadly, that could happen. That's, I don't know. If yeah. there's a lighter side to Rob Zombie, I've yet to experience it through his work. So anyway, that's coming up. What we're going to talk about, I actually referenced it in the first portion. Uh, I rewatched The Terminal. What was that last weekend? Um, after Conor McGregor lost, I had to do something to make myself happy. So I just got <laughs> blisteringly drunk and watched uh, the terminal on VHS. That to me is one of Spielberg's kind of lost gems. I know people celebrate that movie in some regard and talk about it very favorably. Uh, but I don't feel like it's ever discussed as a Spielberg movie, if that makes any sense. It's talked about as a good movie, but it's something that I feel because, you know, it's not Jaws or Jurassic Park or, you know, some huge event movie that Spielberg came to be known for. I think sometimes people forget he directed it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I have some thoughts on that movie. All positive ones. I'm not going to talk shit about Victor Navorsky, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm excited. I, I rewatched it a few years ago and I, I've I have thoughts. So we shall discuss. Well, on my end, Alex, oh, God, I just, I, it's not necessarily that I'm looking forward to this, but I am because I, I just, I need to talk about it and I need to hash this out with you. Uh, I texted you. I think I texted you. Maybe I tweeted about it. I watched movie 43. And you did text me about this because I was very yes. disappointed in you. Have you seen it or I are have. you just, oh, you have, okay, perfect. Then we can I'm talk about it. I'm pretty sure I screened it. <laughs> okay. I would. I just wanted to talk to movie about movie forty three because I I laughed a lot. <laughs> I don't know. I I'm not proud of this opinion, but it is, it is tr- the truth. I don't know. I I just wanted to. I want I want you to tell me exactly where is it that you know why do you that your reaction indicates to me that you don't think very highly of this movie, uh, which is fine. I don't either. But also that you. Don't it find came it up funny. recently. It came <laughs> up. I remember I referenced it uh, on one of our recent episodes. I compared something. It must to movie have been forty three, right? Yeah, it must have been something really bad because I said that movie forty three was like an example of a successful version of what something was trying. So I don't remember what it was, but uh, yeah, I'll be listeners. Hit us up. I'll be interested to hear uh, your thoughts on it yeah the wikipedia page has actually the segments listed and i was like reading through them and i was giggling we'll go over that and then just to so that we can take a hard left uh i also wanted to talk a little bit about uh the fact that county crows just dropped a new album if you can call it that it's four tracks i guess technically it's an ep you know every time that they drop new music which isn't very often i just find myself caught up in like my entire counting crows fandom so uh, i wanted to talk a little bit about that movie 43 counting crows i was about to say rob zombies the monsters and the terminal that's what's waiting for you 
dear patrons and contrarians after hours, in addition to our uh, deleted audio clips, our pre-recording notes, our uh, video reviews, and all the other cool stuff that you've come to expect from uh, the Contrarian Supplements. So if yeah. any of that sounds interesting to you non-patrons, just go to patreon.com slash contrarianprime. Yeah, and from this episode, Bard, listening back to it, and includes any personal information. You'll have a one of our deleted scenes is an interesting discussion about old people falling for dumb fishing scams. So <laughs> there you go. All right, Julio. What year is this movie based in? Does it tell us? I mean, I imagine it doesn't because that would kind of give it away. No, 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 because you could just assume that it's kind of a pretty tame future. Were you When you were watching it, did you think it was like present day? It looked like a few years in the future. The not too distant future is usually how movies like this are classified. Yeah. A few years from now. Um... In December of 2013, it was revealed that the screenplay for Extinction, written by Spencer Cohen, had been included in the 2013 Blacklist of Year's Best Unproduced Scripts in Hollywood, LOL. Uh, <laughs> in January 2014, Joe Johnson signed on, Johnston, excuse me, signed on to direct the film. And in September of 2016, it was revealed that James McAvoy was in talks to star. Good God. One thing Speaking holds us together, X. it's Michael Pena. <laughs> yeah. In October 2016, Ben Young signed on to direct the film while Johnston left the project a while back. In January 2017, it was announced that Michael Pena would star. February 2017, Universal Pictures won worldwide distribution rights to the film with principal production set to begin in April of 2017. March 2017, Lizzie Kaplan and Israel Browsard, Adam Hathaway is what I was calling him. <laughs> Join the cast, Michael Coulter, Lex Shrapnel, that's a hell of a name, and Emma Booth in May. So this all came together over the course of five years, pretty much. I guess I could see where this script is intriguing. Not terribly so, but what ended up happening was, as I mentioned in the first portion of the podcast, Contrarian's Corner, it was pulled from a theatrical release. That is something that studios, I will say, is good for them in the age, well, especially now, but in the age of streaming, that window of time between like, hmm, maybe like 2014 and 2018, 2019, where the projects that they originally had tapped for studio release, like Three from Hell, uh, <laughs> there was the option of just saying, hmm, we should probably cut our losses and never have this printed on film anywhere and just send this to a streaming <laughs> service. Yeah, let's just put from uh, Three from Hell on Disney+. Plus. And probably for the best, because I would wager to guess that come July 27th, 2018, when this dropped on Netflix, uh, there's a good chance that over the next six months, more people watched it on Netflix than would have seen it in the theaters. Yep, I would. I would think so, too. I think that you're more likely to pick the Michael Pena slash Lizzie Kaplan movie as you're browsing through Netflix, as opposed to the, if you made the movie to the trip to the movie theater and it's competing against, I don't know, Transformers 5 and uh, Captain America 3. <laughs> That's crazy, though. Like the, the blacklist thing, it's only listing one of the writers, right? So I wonder if this was a, a script that was much better. And then it got rewritten by the time that you know Joe Johnston was out of the out of the picture. Because I mean, I mean, nothing against Michael Young in the sense of it just 
Joe Johnston is a filmmaker with a career. Like he has a lot of movies under his belt and, you know, so there is a difference between saying Joe Johnston is about to direct the script versus Michael Young's going to direct the script because from the filmography that you read in Contreras Corner. Ben Young. Ben Young. I'm sorry. Fuck. I've been calling him Michael Young the entire time. I'm gonna, That's right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop Ben's all throughout <laughs> Contreras Corner. <laughs> anyway, there's a difference between you know the filmography that Joe Johnson brings versus the one that Ben Young brings, and so to me, it's it feels mean to call it the downgrade, but it's kind of like it feels like you're shifting gears. The Dark Tower adaptation from a couple of years ago, it was originally going to be directed by Ron Howard, and everybody yeah. was like, "All right, you know that sounds." Big budget. That sounds like they're taking it seriously. And then by the time it came out, it had, it was directed by some dude. You know, it's like you see his name and you're like, okay, I, I I don't know anything that this guy has done. And so I wish I don't know how much I care. You know, <laughs> I certainly don't have the time now. But if I had the time, I might find myself caring enough to like seek out the original blacklist script before this project got downgraded from a Joe Johnston movie. To a movie by an emerging filmmaker that I'm imagining decreased in budget and became more about... I'm giving the the original project the benefit of the doubt, I guess. <laughs> Say that it was different than what ended up happening. Because there's a second guy listed as a writer too, right? Yeah. Spencer Cohen and then the screenplay Brad Kane came and helped with it. He was the homeboy from Starship Troopers. <laughs> Can you please make it all happen in the building? <laughs> whatever the case none of this came together to make a good movie <laughs> at all so to make sure you know thoughts don't bleed over we don't hit too many of the same points uh let's go ahead let's start off with uh, people that liked it the critics that were favorable towards it um and then i want to hear dan's thoughts before we launch into our respective opinions so Go ahead and hit me with what you got, Julio. Okay, so I got uh, two fresh quotes, and then and I got the answer review. Uh, I'll start with uh, Kira Allen from the Daily Journal, Kankakee, Illinois, who says, Extinction is sure to thrill, shock, surprise, and impress if you're a science fiction fan. What does that mean? That if you don't like this movie, you are not a science fiction fan? Is that the implication here? Is this a science fiction gatekeeping? Yeah, I guess no, you, I, you'll just think it's okay if you're a fan of other film. Yeah, if you're just if you're just a fiction fan, then you're like, eh. Um, and then Kenneth Seward Jr. from IGN Movies says, "Thankfully, Extinction is mostly saved by the film's minimalist treatment and an interesting twist that is foreshadowed throughout." Not getting too far into it, Alex, but I got the feeling that the twist didn't work for you. Yes or no? Not at all. <laughs> okay, and then let's close with Dan's review. He just said, I demand that part of this be read. And I thought that I was about to click and find just this massive essay about <laughs> extinction. <laughs> yeah, but no, I mean, it's just like, I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read most of it because it's not that long. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very, I, I think it sets the tone. He says, uh, extinction is pretty bad. There's a litany of reasons why, including an uninspired plot, bad CGI, and a breakneck pace, leaving us without a second to resonate. But the main reason this movie is so bad is that there isn't a single moment when a character shuts up. During the invasion and the evasion of the alien force, Peter and his family do not stop making noise. 
During a time when silence should be required, Peter's daughters either breathe loudly, scream for help during a quieter period, or try to have a conversation with their parents while running from certain death. Yes, the main culprit is the children and how they are written. They make baffling decisions to raise tension. The youngest child tries to find her monkey doll during the invasion for some reason, and despite being told by her mother to stay put. The family also attempts to move into the sewers of the city, and the young daughter stops running to look at the flying death machine headed her family's way. Compound these with the constant screaming and talking, and it made these characters completely unlikable in any way. I understand that they're kids and would be scared by an imposing force, but not heeding a single thing that their parents say when they look to their parents for answers is just poor writing. I'm like, I'm sorry, Dan, that's that's just how kids are. <laughs> to close, the poor decisions aren't just for the children. During the invasion, instead of leading his family down from their 20th floor apartment, they head up towards the roof. <laughs> with flying ships with spotlights, it makes no sense to not put as much material between you and them while making your way out of your building to safety. Of course, to get off the roof, Peter suggests using a window cleaning carriage. As if on cue, the kids have a significant problem with this, even though just seconds earlier they asked their parents what they're going to do. The carriage fails, because of course it does, but the constant questioning of what the parents are doing is rage-inducing. He also talks a lot of shit about the CGI, which I imagine you are going to do as well. <laughs> so... He gave it one star out of five. It's just an over-reliance on the CGI. You know what movie this constant, like, I just kept thinking of the entire time I was watching this, that I was like, this is exactly like da-da-da. That movie with Donald Faison, Skyline, Eric Balfour. Are you familiar Mm -hmm. with that movie? I I haven't seen it, but I I thought about it, too, even though I haven't seen it. I've seen the trailer, and I've uh, read reviews of it. I guess the main difference is that movie launched a franchise. It, well, okay, so it didn't launch a theatrical franchise, but there is. At I know least there was like two, a two sequel, a spiritual sequel to it, or at least a, maybe even a direct sequel. I should say that premiered at the Other Worlds Film Festival. So okay, so I that's know- the that's the third movie. Okay, and it's okay. made by the same directors. Yeah, whatever the case, it's not good, and it's just like a movie that is heavily relying on CGI and just the idea of an alien invasion movie. Uh, the way Dan worded some of that with like the dialogue never stops and you know, that everyone's always moving. That makes it sound like almost like it would be interesting and overstimulating. Whereas I just found this movie boring as sin. I was so <laughs> fucking bored this whole movie, dude. Like it, it felt, yeah, maybe some of the shit wasn't quote unquote predictable, but when it came, it was just so eye roll inducing. Like when the alien takes his helmet off and it's a dude, like, for one, I was at least I was like, at least that explains why these aliens look so fucking dumb. Like, because they're not even cool looking aliens. I don't know, man. It was boring. Nothing seemed to really pay off. I mean, you had some talented actors and actresses in there that it just it didn't. It's not good at all. It it deserved to be released on Netflix. <laughs> that's that's mean to Netflix. There's plenty of good movies out there, and then there's this. <laughs> you know what sucks about these movies that are straight to streaming service is like the information that we can get on them now is so much more limited. You know they don't they don't necessarily have to report numbers and stuff like that. So oh, I wasn't I, see. I wasn't able to find like a budget or something like that. So anyway, I thought you meant like as far as like trailers and like knowing oh, no, no, what no. you were getting into. I was like, no, nah, I'm pretty sure that they market the shit out of that. I I mean I do I agree. It's not a good movie. I thank you. I think the main difference between our experiences, and we'll get to it in in, in detail in a little bit. But uh, to me, 
the I, the twist worked for me in the sense that when the twist happened, it finally became like an interesting story. The big problem with the movie to me is like the the middle, which is most of it. Just from the moment that the alien attacks happen until the moment where Michael Pena gets his flashback and the the true story is revealed, it's just a long action sequence that doesn't do anything for me. It's it's pretty generic, and it just I kept waiting for them to get out of the the building, and they were in the building for like twenty minutes at least, and then they go underground for another twenty minutes. It's nothing that I haven't seen before, and it just has that that feeling that a lot of movies on Netflix do, like these medium budget slash low budget uh, projects have that. It's not always bad, but that you can tell, right? That there, it's it's a smaller budget, so you're trying to keep the the story contained. And in this case, is I I felt it. I was like, well, obviously they can't leave the building because that's more expensive if they leave the building. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> so, guess I didn't even think of that. D- didn't you feel like the story was? I mean, sometimes it works. Like I always think of uh, Ex Machina as like a really good example of a movie that doesn't look like it was. Other than well, whatever you paid Oscar Isaac and Alicia Vikander and uh, the other guy, you know, I'm sure they made a good paycheck out of that. But you know, it, it's pretty self-contained, right? And uh, you can tell a story like that, and it's almost like you don't feel that the movie is that the script is keeping you in one location for budget budgetary reasons. It just feels like, oh no, that's the way that the story is meant to be told. Yeah, uh, but. In this you know scenario, what movie does feel like that is one of your favorites is this is the end. It feels like they're doing it for budget reasons or or it works. No, that it feels like they're doing it for budget reasons because every time they leave like the house that they're in, it's just awful CGI. <laughs> yeah. Which again, do knowing that movie, that could all be intentional. Anyway, I get what right, you're trying right. to say. And in this movie, it's it's not the kind of movie where that works. It's a alien invasion. I don't care what's happening in this one apartment building. Show me. It's like the Cloverfield thing. That's what's awesome about that. Like the whole fucking Isle of Manhattan is in absolute tatters. And here it's just kind of like, hey, can I talk to you for a second? Like, bitch, we want to see what the aliens are doing. <laughs> but 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 you could make it work if you just didn't try to make it about the big action set pieces. You know, if like, okay, if if your budget does not allow you to really show me the alien invasion, then don't even try. Why do you need to go to the rooftop and show me the big, you know, whatever, or, or, you know, have that be the one shot, but just give me a good reason why they're going to stay in this building or why they're going to be underground most of the time and uh, make it so that I feel like that was necessary instead of like, oh, they're doing this because it's a smaller production and we can't really go out there. Uh, The problem is that this movie makes its second act action-driven. And so, yeah, um, it's just like, okay, if this was supposed to be about the set pieces, I am thoroughly unimpressed. You're not even, I mean, you have actors like Michael Pena and Lizzie Kaplan, and you're not giving them anything to do. They're just running around, <laughs> punching aliens. <laughs> just, what the hell? At least before that happens, I'm like, all right, I can, I can dig the dynamic of Lizzie Kaplan and Michael Pena in this strained relationship where she's tired of his shit. You know, I really got the, the total recall vibes. Yeah. And, and Arnold is a better action star than Michael Pena, but Michael Pena is a better actor. You don't than, say. <laughs> but 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 Michael Pena is a better actor than Arnold as far as like, you know, he can be a little more subtle about portraying a guy that's having this sort of internal meltdown that keeps having 
this yearning or this premonition or whatever, you know? And so when when the movie first started, I'm like, all right, um, if this is what the movie's gonna be about with these actors, I'm I'm cool with that. And then it turned into a generic action movie, and I'm like, all right, well, that was a waste of time. And and then the twist happened. I'm like, all right, well, at least we're no longer running around shooting people or escaping from aliens. And uh, it actually told a story again. I mean, to me, that flashback, I, I mean, it's not, it's pretty heavy handed and it's nothing that we haven't seen before. But at least to me, that's kind of a self-contained prequel to Extinction that I enjoyed watching more than I enjoyed watching Extinction itself. The the story of uh, Michael Peña and Lizzie Kaplan creating a relationship and the story of the escalation, be- the, you know, of the tensions between humanity and the artificial intelligence creatures. I mean, that stuff for me was was cool. Uh, I just wish that it wasn't the the one good thing in the movie, the, the one thing that really captured me. I don't know. You know, it's like, going back to twists, twist endings, it's like, is it worth it to keep your audience in the dark so that you can have this big surprise? Or wouldn't it be better to just have it all out there from the beginning? Because that way you... It doesn't feel like your movie's generic, at least, because you, you have all these new... All this information that makes your movie cooler, you're not saving it to the end. You just have it up front, and maybe that makes it more engaging. I think my big difference with you, I, I welcome the twist when it happened. <laughs> uh, to me, I called this out a little bit in the first portion. You kind of said there, your thoughts, there's a more interesting movie with the dynamics with Lizzie Kaplan and Michael Pena. I think... So many things that are raised by this movie are so much more interesting than what we actually get. I cannot overstate how dumb the aliens look. And I know we find out that they're not aliens. Uh It's just like, then why the fuck? Why is the military dressed like that? Like, why are they wearing this like steampunk outfit that stayed out in the sun too long and got melted with a big helmet on it? God. And then it brings into, okay, where are the humans living? That's more interesting than what's going on. Yeah. How long have the AI been there? You know, they imply it's been several generations, but how long have they really been there? You know, how do they subsist? What, what do they do? It's Yeah, I, I was having all these questions because this movie is, you know, pretty forgettable. Like you get to the end. Honestly, I watched it a week, a week ago and I told you I had to like kind of refresh my memory today because I was like, I remember that... The, the very big thing is, but I couldn't remember how that got stretched to 90 minutes. And so I was playing with it again. And as it was happening, I started questioning. I was like, why haven't they noticed that they don't age? <laughs> you know, and, and I guess the easy question you can, most questions can be answered by saying, well, when they got mind wiped, they programmed themselves not to notice these things right like you know i'm sure that Possibly. at some point somebody's had an accident and they didn't notice that they're not human inside because when uh when lizzie kaplan when the and hathaway's brother when he's cutting into her and you see the the blue glow and the the mechanics inside michael peña looks surprised so that means that he knows that that is not human what he's seeing there so are you telling me that all over this AI planet, nobody has ever injured themselves to the point where they had to perform surgery. And then they found out like, hey, this is not how it's supposed to be. <laughs> uh, but again, you know, you can, I guess you could just. Why have I never it. taken a piss in my life? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know you had the answer for it, too. But like that line of throwaway dialogue, they killed our parents because they were human. It's like, well, how did they come to acquire you? 
it's not well told. It's boring. It looks unbelievably sterile, which really makes this the bad. It's not even bad necessarily, just the over-reliance on CGI. Some of the flames do look bad. They look like graphics from a PlayStation 1 game. But the fact that the movie starts the way it does with the very sharp colors and the very clean cut presentation of it, it really accents and calls out and makes stand out the over-reliance on CGI and just how shitty the presentation is because in almost any scene of substantial action, there's minimal lighting to speak of. You know, those movies that the action sequences have to be shot in the dark to kind of hide, you know, Mm -hmm. what's not there. I get what they were going for in the beginning, the light turning into darkness, all that bullshit, but it really, it doesn't accomplish what you think it does. It actually does the opposite because it accents some of the flaws of your film. Well, uh, I think that it's, it's also part of the, you know, going back to the problem with the twist again, you know, it's like if you're making your movie mainly in service of the twist, then you, I think that you kind of find yourself falling into these traps because, yeah, like right now when you describe the look as as sterile, I'm like, well, it makes sense, right? Because once you know that these are not real humans, that they're uh, artificial intelligence, I'm like, okay, well, it makes sense to depict their world like that. But it only makes sense in the rear view mirror after you know the twist. When you're watching yeah. it, you're like, what the fuck? Why, why couldn't they shoot this in a more interesting way? And so, you know, it's like, okay, assuming that, you know, that's what they were going for, I get it. But maybe it wasn't the best creative decision because it doesn't really... It doesn't engage me in a movie that's already having trouble keeping me engaged. So what I was going to bring up in the first portion, but I couldn't figure out a way to work it in in a positive way. This movie and elements of its plot are remarkably similar to a video game that came out to some substantial fanfare at the time called Detroit Become Human. Oh, um, I think you plugged it here a while ago. Yes. That was the first game I played of the pandemic, and it was like <laughs> it, back when it started. We thought it was only going to be like two months or something. I was like, <laughs> "Oh, I'll play some video games," and that was one of them. It's it's fucking awesome. I understand that's probably very likely coincidental, if not entirely. But the point that I'm trying to make with this is Detroit Become Human is one of those like live action cinematic games that, you know, they capture human movement and it it play. It's not like Tetris. It plays out in a situation where you have to pick what your character does and, you know, choose its Mm. motivations. But you play as these different AI. They were created to help humans and now they're starting to become self-aware and turn on them. Yada, yada, yada. Excellent game. So when I thought of that, it made me realize how much more endlessly fascinating just the plot of that game is and is than this movie. Because this movie tries to do this thing. It gives itself a veneer of an alien invasion movie when it's not at all. And there's no extraterrestrial life at all in the movie. If the payoff had been, hey, yeah, we're humans. You're not. But we're coming to tell you that there's some fucked up shit out there in the universe and we need your help. Yeah, okay, cool. But to like <laughs> tease that your movie has to do with an invasion of an outside force of you know, one that you're not prepared for or even know what it is and then in the end just for it to be my iPad turned on me. It's basically what this movie <laughs> turned out to be. It's just like mm, it's a obviously there's people that like it, but to me just that idea it, it puts you in a lose-lose situation and it, there, there's a way to tell this story, but trying to tell this 
it's basically a sci-fi movie. It is a sci-fi movie that they bundle in all these other sci-fi tropes to, I guess, camouflage its weaknesses as far as its storytelling goes. And it just comes across as this jumbled mess. Uh, if any of what I just said there makes sense, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I know I'm. this is my third time, I think, bringing it up. So I'm just like a broken record at this point. But to me, it's, again, like what you're saying, it ties into the idea of just writing it for the twist. Because they are so limited in what they can do to keep us engaged. Because they can't ruin the big reveal of, you know, oh, this is what's really going on. So they have to keep these invading forces mysterious enough to where we can still believe that they're aliens. And that means that they they don't go with the most interesting choices whenever they're having interactions with them or whenever they're showing, like, you know, what they do. The main interest, the main drive of the movie most of the time is just to keep us in the dark and make us believe something that's not happening. When really, you could be getting into, like, more interesting stuff if, you know, just either don't try to fool us into thinking there's an alien invasion or get rid of that notion pretty early on. I, okay, maybe you don't give us the entire backstory, but give us enough to where we understand that something is happening. It's pretty odd because I, like, the movie ended and I'm like, you know what? It ended on a higher note than I'd felt through most of it. And I also, I was like, honestly, I would watch Extinction too because <laughs> they've gotten rid of all the bullshit set up. Give me a, somebody else behind the camera. Give somebody else a shot. Get, like, a stronger script. But would I be interested in watching what happens next now that Michael Pena and Lizzie Kaplan and Luke Cage, they all have their memories and the humans are back on Earth and they they seem to be pretty heavily armed? I was like, yeah, I would watch it, you know? And I would imagine a sequel would dig deeper into that whole thing of uh, we are humans and this used to be our planet, but that doesn't mean we're on the right side of you know history. Like what Miles kind of comes to realize in the last part of the movie. To me, that's worth exploring. I mean, I'll, I'll be surprised if we ever get any sort of sequel to Extinction, but I, if it happened, I would, like, I would watch it because as much as this movie botches that setup, by the end of it, I'm like, all right, if I were to tell you the story of what happened in, in Extinction, the important stuff, because I would get rid of all the bullshit if I gave you the five-minute synopsis and you had never seen it, you'd be like, oh, that sounds cool. And then I'll be like, oh, psych, it's not. <laughs> when you watch it on Netflix, they told that story in the most convoluted, most boring, generic way. But it sets you up for the next chapter and it would be, it could be good. Maybe this time they, they actually get Joe Johnston to do it and, uh, and we're in for a good time. I don't know. I don't think it's a total loss as much as I'm complaining about it, but it's definitely not good. I mean, I kind of have to ask you because we're sort of like ankle deep maybe knee-deep even into like the the highs and lows of uh, M. Night Shyamalan, somebody who's into twists and who's... We've covered at least two really bad movies of his. How do you feel when you put Extinction side-by-side side with Last Airbender and The Happening? I'm watching both of those before I watch this again. Really? Yeah, yeah. I really do not care for this. And another thing is, too, that I haven't really touched on. I couldn't really figure out a way to inject it in the conversation. Michael Payne is a good actor. I mean, I prefer him comedically, but it's not. He's a good actor, so it's, mm -hmm. it is what it is. And it's also, they did a good enough job of 
allowing him to still have emotion and range and not making him completely robotic or, you know, just kind of emotionally mute. Whereas to me, it seems like they stripped away everything that is good about Lizzie Kaplan. Yep. It's like, okay, in this movie for 30 minutes, you are going to be a bitter wife that is considering leaving her husband, but you don't get that much dialogue. And then you're going to get shot and then really not talk that much for the rest of the movie until the end where you apologize to your husband for being wrong the whole time. Lizzie Kaplan is a great actress, but she is, I mean, for our patrons, you listened to our Bachelorette episode and how complimentary we both were of her in that. She's obviously very talented comedically, but it, it all the same in that movie. She's able to flex some of her acting abilities as well, and it just seems like you have... You know, we'll never know. It's possible they could have had no chemistry at all to begin with, but I felt there was a much greater opportunity here than was explored. And especially going into a sci-fi movie with Lizzie Kaplan, I was like, this will be interesting. And then it was not because they didn't really give her anything to do with it. No no wheels, no, no running shoes to put on. So that was really frustrating. And then the homeboy that they did give like a full arc to, the military dude... <laughs> I mean, good for Israel Browsard. Browsard. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that was a really big deal for him and a big moment in his career, but uh, you were not what I was really wanting to see in those moments. <laughs> so yeah. I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I was nervous because I thought at first that you were setting up uh, sort of a takedown of Michael Pena's performance, and I was going to push back because I, I agree. I think that he's... He probably comes out, out of everybody in this movie, he comes out the best. Because obviously they give him more to do than anybody else. And yeah, I agree. Lizzie Kaplan is it's absolutely wasted in this movie. What, the most interesting thing, the most striking thing about Lizzie Kaplan in this movie is just the idea of having Lizzie Kaplan and Michael Pena as a couple. And I'm not saying that to be funny or, you know, to be... It's just that you don't see that very often. You know, you yeah. don't see Michael Pena as a leading man very often. I kind of joked about this in Contrarian's Corner, but that to me was kind of exciting. I was like, oh, a Michael Pena vehicle, like a sci-fi sort of action Michael Pena vehicle? Sure. That's... Why not? Exactly. I mean, you know, when you're talking about... uh representation all that stuff like this is also part of it you know and it's like it doesn't have to be any doesn't have to have any like underlying like racial undertones or anything it's just the fact that you have michael peña hispanic actor leading this sort of like big sci-fi thriller and he's married to uh, lizzie kaplan and they have two kids and it's really like it's just there that actually subconsciously you start to realize yeah that actually doesn't look quite like the other 10 movies that were playing at the same time you know and that's cool but that's literally where it ends <laughs> because what they actually do with that relationship in the movie i mean it doesn't really go anywhere like i said i liked the the tension but that ends up not being what drives the movie because as soon as the the invasion starts happening there's no tension anymore she instantly acknowledges that he was right and uh, and that's it from then on it's just like all right we're just killing time until she gets shot and then she apologizes at the end it's just it's a waste of uh two really good actors i i agree i don't know if they had chemistry i don't think that the movie gave us enough to really figure that out but again i just wonder what the original script was like maybe hopefully the wife character had more going on instead of just being sidelined lastly it We have lived, especially in the last 20 years, through so many incarnations of the who is the real monster story. (laughs) And 
And I mean that in like video games, movies, television, and I'm sure some music and books have illustrated that same point as well. So it's becoming one of those philosophies and tropes and storytelling machinations that if you're going to be using it, you best bring your working boots. You better put some new spin on it or something original to it. And it just seemed like laziness in this movie. This is the point we're going to make. It's only going to come after we go through like, you know, seven different twists and turns. <laughs> so for that to be the moral of the story in the end, which don't get me wrong, I appreciate anything, any work of art that could potentially make someone realize that we as human beings are not that different from one another because that's that's an important thing that some people still have a hard time grasping but we've seen it done so many times and so well for a movie that comes disguised as an alien invasion movie to end up that way when there are no aliens at all you know i keep harping on that but that's my biggest problem with the movie you disguised yourself as this you turned out it wasn't uh, but it still kind of went on the same way you know that that's coming off of signs where <laughs> aliens aren't the point of the movie, but they're there and they're really there. And it adds like this whole holy shit factor to the movie. That could be why I'm being so harsh on this and st on this sticking point. But it really, if you're going to sell me as one thing and you're not that you better do a really good job of being what you actually are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I appreciate the message it's trying to tell. It just does a poor job of it. And it, it's such a clunky voyage there that by the end, it's just like, well, that was a movie. I'm a sucker for uh, sort of like those uh, cyclical, like stories that kind of examine the, the cyclical nature of life. And uh, kind of brought it up half way as a joke and contrast corner but i because i don't even know that this was what they were going for but it's something that's there and it could have been exploited more and to me just the idea that he can't tell and we can't tell that what he's having when he dreams that they're flashbacks not premonitions the points that you can make with that idea you know just the fact that <laughs> the attack that's going to happen or the attack that is happening looks very similar to the attack that happened before and that's because you know as humans we make the same mistakes and we, all that stuff i mean to me that is there's a lot of rich material to mine in this story even using the conceit of course the the cynical answer which is probably right is that they were not going for any of that it's just the reason why the attacks look similar is because they want to trick you into thinking one thing instead of the other. You know, it's not about any sort of thematic resonance, but it's just about misdirection. And I was like, ah, well, that's not as interesting. <laughs> but to me, just saying that humans just are so similar in the way that, you know, generations later, they continue to showcase their hatred for for fellow beings. It You know, it's like, it looks just like when they try to bomb us out of existence however many years ago to me mm -hmm. that is not even a missed opportunities just a i don't know completely ignored bit of a thematic richness it's almost like accidental in the movie as it is right now so i just see it and you know wasted potential you have the actors and you have the germ of a story that could have been told in a much more interesting way yeah it's it's a bummer 
I've 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 gone through like the roller coaster of just rolling my eyes at this movie, making fun of it, and now just being bummed about it. I would go one further, and I don't think it's wasted potential. I think it's an abject failure, and I think it's. While we were discussing here, I was reading Netflix acquired it for an undisclosed amount. That thing I was talking about, about money, those numbers now not having to be disclosed. But I think this would have been an absolute disaster for them had it gone to the theater. And I think, like we said, more people saw it on Netflix. And it's a movie that's probably got a little bit easier and off the hook a bit more because there's still that idea and that will probably exist at least for the next five or ten years that if it's on Netflix, you can't have your expectations too high. It is what it is, and it is not good. I mean, of course, this was, what, two years ago? Three years ago? When did it come out again? This, uh, 2018, uh, July of 2018. Yeah, three years ago. I mean, I think that even in those three years, what people think of as a Netflix movie has changed a little bit, and I imagine it's going to continue changing. Much like, oh, what a TV movie used to mean, it's very different from what a TV movie is now. I think mm-hmm. that the concept, the concept of a Netflix original was one thing and now it's another i still i mean we had this discussion a while ago i think it was during the mute episode where i'm like you know what i welcome that there's netflix has this library where they're just like throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks and you know it means that there's a lot of stuff like extinction but if we get 20 extinctions so we can get one movie that i really like I'm like that. I'm fine with that ratio. I guess what I'm saying is that I don't know how much longer the idea of uh, a Netflix original being something that you go into with low expectations is going to continue to be a thing. Obviously, it's still there, but I I don't know yeah. about you. Like I feel like it's been decreasing, you know, because now you have like the prestige Netflix originals, the ones that go, you know, and actually are contenders for awards and all that stuff, and then you have like the middle of the ground Netflix originals, which are like. Yeah, they're not going to win any awards, but seem to have some pretty good buzz. And then you have the stuff that you're like, oh, yeah, this is there just because there was no point in releasing it in theaters. But I think that the mix is getting more interesting. So, yeah, I think it would be a shame for somebody to watch this and go like, oh, just a Netflix original. What was I expecting? Yeah, I guess that's that's also fair. I, I think I've exhausted my thoughts and opinions on it so far. It's just one of those movies that, like I said, I kept thinking of Skyline because it felt like that. It felt like a movie that, it, 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 just like you said earlier, the script of this might have been like mind blowing. Like I always think when I think of like great scripts, I think of that shot in Hamlet two where he's writing the script for his play and he's crying while he's writing it because what he's <laughs> writing is so good. That could be this type of script. But in execution, it really felt like when it got to production, the thought was, we're just going to cloak this in a bunch of different sci-fi cliches, and then what comes of it comes of it. And that was when I remember seeing Skyline, it's just like, okay, okay, none of this really makes any sense, but they're just relying on these visual effects and, you know, firefight. And and in this, they couldn't even get that right. I mean, you do have Lizzie Kaplan going ape shit with a baseball bat at one point, which is cool, but... (laughs) I'm struggling, Julio, to say anything nice about it, which I know is a rarity for us on these, even like the worst <laughs> of the worst. Like even Showgirls, I was talking about how great Kyle McLaughlin is. Well, what if this was a short, Alex? Because I, I literally just thought about this Is I was getting re- ready to wrap up. And it's like, if this was a short without all the bullshit action and it's just this couple, you know, the invention happens, but the, you don't wait 70 minutes to for the big twist. It's just a short, there's this alien invasion, you see this couple that looks human, one of the invaders 
manages to make it into their house, their apartment, whatever. Somehow there's a struggle, they mask him and it's a human and it's like, what the hell? And in the struggle, the one of the people like gets shot and then you see that they're bleeding, I don't know, blue <laughs> blood or whatever. You know, and it's like yeah. you take care of all this stuff like in 20 minutes. I think that that would be a good short. That'd be a great short. <laughs> Yeah. You, get, you didn't overstay your welcome. You didn't waste our time with with generic action, and uh, and you made your point pretty clear, like in pretty quickly. I would agree with that. I, that's not necessarily saying something nice about the movie itself, but I think that if nothing else, the concept is there to make something more interesting than what they did. There you go. We can end on that positive note before <laughs> I give the movie an F. <laughs> yeah, I'm giving this an F. I think this is. This is going to go in the lower tier. You know, the more we talked about it and the more I figured out things about the the plot of this and the execution and the use of actors in it, I realized more things I didn't like. But the cardinal sin that you can play in, in creating a movie or you can commit, not play, I should say. And I talk about this all the fucking time on and off air with this is your movie being boring. You can have an awful movie, but if, it, if it's something like I'm watching and still like, what is going on? That's more memorable than something like this that is just resoundingly boring. And then on top of that, this discussion has led me to figure out all the other shit that's completely wrong with it. So for all that, yeah, I'm giving this an F. Sorry, Ben and Mr. Pena and Miss Kaplan, but I can't do it. <laughs> I'll be a little more generous than you and Dan. I'm going to give it two stars because this movie's benefiting from me still reeling from watching Last Airbender, which was worse to me, a worse experience than this. I think I would rewatch The Happening before I rewatch Extinction, but I would rewatch Extinction before I rewatch Last Airbender because Extinction, if nothing else, has that flashback, that extended flashback. That the story in that flashback is much more interesting than anything happening in Extinction and anything happening in Last Airbender. <laughs> so I'll take that. Uh, and I like I like where the movie was going. Like I said, that's why I would watch a sequel, even as bad as this first movie is. And I like the cast. You know, they didn't kill Lizzie Kaplan off, so in a sequel, she'd be able to do something. Maybe in the sequel, Michael Pena is the one that gets shot, and Lizzie Kaplan gets to have flashbacks of their of her own. I'm I'm going with two stars. It barely made it to two stars, but but it did. Well, Dan, I hope our takedown of it was everything you hoped it would be. And if you were expecting one of us to like it, I'm sorry, but that just didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> For that, just listen to Contrarian's Corner. Coming up soon on our Patreon feed, though, is Dan's uh, other. Patron Demand, where we will be discussing the Brad Pitt film Ad Astra, which I'm very excited to watch. Julio and I are actually going to record that tomorrow night, so going to be a quick turnaround. On the main timeline, though, Julio, what is on deck? Uh, well, we're back to the Shamal Anthology, or yeah. as our uh, social media guru, Zoe, suggested, now, like halfway through the Shamal Anthology, she's like, you know, you should call it Shamalathon. Shamalanathon? <laughs> <laughs> That, that's also great. <laughs> it's good, but I was like, look, I'll mention it on the episode, but we're we're too far gone now. We did Signs and we did Lester Bender. We can't change the name halfway through. The Shyamalan Anthology Part 3, it takes us back to uh, another M. Night Shyamalan rotten movie, The Maligned After Earth, which I, uh, a listener of ours, Mario, he actually thinks this one is the worst of them all. Can you imagine, Alex, a movie by M. Night Shyamalan that's worse than uh, The Happening and Last Airbender? No. 
So I'm I'm intrigued. <laughs> I I I remember watching it, you know, when it came out, and I don't know. I have thoughts. I'll have more thoughts after I rewatch it next week. Also, if you can't get enough of Alex and I, a little bit ago we guessed it uh, for the second time. I want to say on the the Spit and Polish podcast with Ryan and Bartek. Uh, this time we discussed the uh, Kurt Russell vehicle soldier. Speaking of science fiction movies, well, that that do something. <laughs> soldier directed by uh, Paul W S Anderson. Uh, blind spot on Alex and I's movie watching experiences, and Ryan and Bartek felt that we needed to be educated on this bit of a uh, Kurt Russell filmography. So if you want to hear us talk, and it's all real talk there. There's no contrarian's corner. It's all <laughs> real. Uh, just check out uh, the Soldier episode of the Spit and Polish podcast. Uh, it was it was fun. It was a good discussion. There was a lot of conflicting opinions and a lot of agreement as well. All right. Be sure to check that out. Be sure to check out what's coming down the pipe as well. In the meantime, we're going to go ahead and close this out with our perennial plugs. As always, we start off by thanking the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand and take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our friend fellow podcaster Hans Rothpieser is the man behind our logo, all the graphics on our webpage, on our Patreon page, on our upcoming merch. Uh, he does all sorts of cool stuff. You can check it at his website, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S dot P-E. You can also contact him on Twitter at Mildemonios or email him at mildemonios at hotmail.com if you want logos, if you want comics, if you want to talk to him about his numerous zombie novels. And there's one that's coming out soon, Alex, that actually has a contribution from yours truly. I will uh, give more information once I get it from Hans, but that. Uh, exciting stuff and then of course he has his two podcasts nacion combi and marginal one's about peruvian current affairs the other one's about economy hans does it all and we are very thankful for his support of the show and as has become tradition we close out by thanking Ms. zoe perez who helps out with our social media game our instagram and facebook accounts if you haven't already instagram the app we're on it at contrarian prime <laughs> facebook.com slash contrarian prime Zoe helps uh, make videos, interactive graphics, uh, audio clips, some really cool stuff uh, for you, our fans and listening public. Zoe, we really appreciate all the work you do for us. And with all the pleasantries out of the way, that is going to do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. I just can't quite get-